we're up to chapter 2, Mishnah 17. It's a very short Mishnah, but I think it has one of the most important ideas or maybe a very general idea that applies to all of Torah. And I'll read it quickly and we'll go through a little bit of the character of Rabbi Yossi and then we'll dig in. Rabbi Yossi Omer, Rabbi Yossi says, this again is one of the five primary disciples of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai that we've been discussing in the, past, in the previous several Mishnahs. Let the money of your fellow man be as dear to you as your own. Apply yourself to study Torah. Because it's not an inheritance for you. And let all your deeds be for the sake of heaven. So Rabbi Yossi, he is known in the Talmud as Rabbi Yossi HaKohen, Rabbi Yossi the, Rabbi Yossi the priest, there are very few teachings of his that are preserved in the Talmud and the Mishnah. There is one interesting episode uh, where him and a colleague and Rabbi Yehoshua were traveling along the way and they were discussing matters of Kabbalah, matters of the account of the Merkava, the chariot, which is a reference to the most Kabbalistic ideas. And the Talmud records that they were t- they were on the way and they're traveling and they're talking about matters of Kabbalah. And like, even though it was the middle of the summer, it started like a recreation of the Mount Sinai experience. They would start raining and all the angels were gathering around to listen to them. Very dramatic uh, uh, story. That's the one uh, episode we're told about him in the Talmud. But he was one of the primary students of Rabbi Yochanan Zakkai and he teaches us this very succinct, but I think very powerful Mishnah. So let's go through it one by one. The first thing, maybe the most difficult one, is that the, let the money of your friend be as dear to you as your own money. You know, I have a policy not to talk politics, uh, but the idea of like the, the debt and the deficit that come up, especially from the opposition party, whichever party that may be. Uh, there's that big sign in New York with how much money that the United States government is in debt. But I was thinking like, like this really does not move no, nothing happens on this front until it's too late and you have to go into austerity because you can't finance your debt. But like people don't care about this or they care about it theoretically but not in a practical way because it's it's someone else's money. It's not their own finances. If they go into debt, God forbid they go into a deficit, they're in their family's finances, that matters, that bothers them. If it's someone else's, it's the government, it's, it's other taxpayers, whatever, that doesn't matter to them. So I was thinking to do like a, a, a thought experiment you know, if I were to offer the average random guy in the street, I'd offer them, I'm going to give you $100 in exchange for the United States government going another trillion dollars into debt. Would the average citizen take the deal? And I don't know what the answer is. I wish, I wonder how many people would take the deal because $100 for me may mean more than a trillion dollars for other people. I, you know, I was thinking – we. I, you know, um, with the health insurance marketplace, right? One of the problems with w- why health insurance or health care is so expensive, regardless of how who pays for it, it's expensive, is because the way our system is designed is that the people who are making the medical choices are not the people who are paying for it. And they only pay for it in a roundabout way. And again, I'm not an expert in healthcare policy, things like that, but if you go to the doctor, the doctor says, you want this test or that test, what's it going to cost me right now out of pocket? Nothing. Of course, you'll end up paying for it because you're raising the price of healthcare for everyone and everyone a- ends up shouldering that that burden. But th- this is this idea. People tend 
to be more economical, more frugal if it's coming out of their pocket uh, versus when it's uh, coming out of someone else's pocket. You know, if someone else is paying the bill, I think I'm going to order the steak. You know, if it's me, I don't know. Uh, I don't really need an appetizer. We'll, we'll go cheap. Why do we know? Well, why do we need to go to that restaurant? Can't we just make food at home? If someone else is paying for it, okay, let's uh, you know, let's write. You know, let's that's okay. You know, uh, so that that's a tendency that we that we have here. Uh, here we're told that this is what he's advocating is that we should treat our friends' money the same way we same way we treat ourselves. Don't have uh, two policies. Well, if I'm paying for it. Then this is what we're getting. If someone else is paying for it, okay, then we could uh, run up the bill. This is his advice to achieve perfection is to try to be as frugal and as economical uh, and as thrifty with someone else's money the same way you would be with your own money, which again is one of the general themes that we see in the Torah that you should treat others the way you treat yourself, love others as you love yourself, judge them favorably like you judge yourself favorably. And here we see with respect to someone else's money, be careful with it just like it would be your own don't say uh because it's a rental car you know we can rip it uh or things like that uh try to be uh assiduous about someone else's things someone else's property someone else's money the way you would be on your own that's the first thing the second teaching in the mishnah is apply yourself or literally prepare or fix yourself to study torah because it is not an inheritance for you. Someone might say, hey, my father was a great Torah scholar. My grandfather was a great Torah scholar. My great-grandfather was a great Torah scholar. I, naturally, will be a great Torah scholar. That's a mistake because it's not something you get an inheritance. Inheritance you get for free. So your father dies. He was rich. He leaves you inheritance. You get it for free. Torah is not like that. Everyone begins their life with zero. They're ignorant. You have to learn. And no matter how much Torah was accessed in previous generations, you start from scratch. I'm in the middle of an amazing memoir written by Rabbi Israel Meir Lau, who was the former chief rabbi of the state of Israel from 1993 to 2003. In fact, his son, Rabbi David Lau, is the current chief rabbi of Israel. And he was one of the youngest prisoners in Buchenwald in, in the Holocaust. He was eight when Buchenwald was, was liberated. And he stresses this point that he was he came from a lineage of 37 generations of rabbis. Over a thousand years, uninterrupted, his father, his grandfather, his great-grandfather, his great-grandfather, etc., 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 all rabbis from some of the big wigs of, of Jewish history. And of course, he comes out of the Holocaust and doesn't even read Hebrew, but he rises to become the chief rabbi of Israel, first the chief rabbi of Tel Aviv, Chief Rabbi Israel, he's now the head of Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Museum. He's also a chief rabbi of, of Tel Aviv as well. His son is now the chief rabbi. An amazing story. Very, very powerful book, but a very stirring, stirring read. Very powerful. And like you, you read about like how like he, he, he was hiding in his brother's backpack in, in, in Buchenwald. And they said, okay, oh, everyone throw all your stuff in the fire. So you had to jump out of the backpack. Crazy. And he's a little, little kid. And everyone, he's surrounded by... By, uh, by all these men in this horrific conditions. And then he goes to Israel and eventually he's adopted by his uncle. And I'm now at the stage where he's growing up and now he's in his teens and he's becoming a fantastic Torah scholar. Uh, amazing, amazing uh, an Arab. I was thinking like, he comes from 37 generations of rabbis. His father was renowned as the greatest 
rabbinic orator in Poland, an amazing orator. And he, he references this many times in the book that people who hear him speak and heard his father speak, they say, oh, you have a little bit of your father's son. He's a great speaker. His son is as well. Amazing. Uh, highly recommended. Out of the Depths. That's the name of the book. But I was thinking, like, you, you come from 37 generations of rabbis. And here, what do we say? We tell them, apply yourself to study because it's not an inheritance. Yes, maybe you're more predisposed. Maybe you have certain gifts, but you are born ignorant. And if you want to become a great scholar, you have to apply yourself. You're not going to get it for free. It's not an inheritance for you. And now this is an interesting idea that we see throughout the Jewish literature about the subject of Torah greatness that is very much a, a meritocracy. It's not something, you know, if you're a Kohen, your kid's going to be a Kohen. If you're a king, you're King David, well, it's likely you're about to pass that on. Those things are more uh, are more passed on by family, whereas the greatest crown of them all, the crown of Torah, Torah scholarship, is available for everyone. There's a very famous uh, citation from the Rambam in Chapter 3 of the Laws of Torah Scholarship, where he brings out this point, he says there's three crowns of glory in the Jewish nation. The crown of the kingship, of the monarchy, the crown of the priesthood, of the Kohenship, and the crown of Torah. And the crown of monarchy was given to David and his family. And if you're not part of that family, nothing you could do to become part of that family and become a king. And if your father's not a Kohen, you're not a Kohen no matter what you do. You don't descend from Aaron. You can't be a Kohen. However, the greatest crown of them all, the crown of Torah scholarship, is open for everyone. Whoever wants to come and grab it, it's yours. And he points out, interestingly, uh, from the Talmud, that uh, the Talmud has a question. We know that there's certain, there's hierarchies. You know, the Kohen gets the first aliyah, and there's certain honor that is accorded to people based upon their status. And the Talmud asks the question, what to do if you have a high priest on one hand, the greatest spiritual leader of the Jewish nation, but he's, he's ignorant in matters of Torah. On the other hand, you have a bastard, someone born from an illegitimate union, but he's a great Torah scholar. Which one of them is accorded more honor? And the Talmud says that the bastard, the Mamzer Talmud Chacham, was a Torah scholar, he takes precedence over the high priest who is ignorant because this is earned. The Torah scholarship is earned. You don't get it as inheritance. It's a meritocracy. You have to earn it. You're on your own. That indeed warrants that the person who has that crown, who's the bearer of that crown, is given plaudits for his accomplishment. And finally, we read, Let all your deeds be for the sake of heaven. This statement is by the commentaries they explain this really encapsulates everything that the Torah wants to for us to achieve that all our deeds not just our religious our ritualistic our spiritual deeds all our deeds should be for the sake of heaven of course this is going to be a tall task as we will see so all the commentaries speak about it in their own style but Rabbi Yoda for example he says even matters that are not mitzvos, and he gives a list, eating, drinking, sitting, standing, walking, going to sleep, uh, marital intercourse, conversations, everything, things that are just things that people do, all the needs of your body, all that should be focused towards spiritual aims, towards matters of heaven, uh, things that are going to bind you with the Almighty, with your spiritual half, and or things that will lead to that. 
And he goes through one by one, you know, eating and drinking. What does that mean? It means that your focus when you eat and drink should be that even though it's something that everyone needs to do, everyone needs food, all bodies need food. So what's so why we're we making a spiritual deal about this? And the answer is, is that the, yes, in our world, we look at things in a binary way. There's the spiritual half and then there's the physical half. What he's telling you is that really everything could be spiritual if you just focus it, if you direct it in a spiritual way. So he says, you're eating and drinking anyhow. Everyone eat, needs to eat breakfast or some people skip breakfast. Everyone needs to eat food. Okay, but why are you eating food? Are you eating food because you need to eat food? And then you're making a platform for your body on its own, so to speak. Or you could say, hey, in order for me to do the will of God, in order for me to be a spiritually vital person, I need to have a body that is functional. And therefore, I'm going to eat to enable my spiritual aims. That's really the goal of my life. By doing that just slight shift, what I did is I directed that my actions, all my actions, should be for the sake of heaven. And he goes through all your happenings, your sleep. You could sleep because, hey, sleeping is awesome. And you get to get you feel good, you feel invigorated. That's and everyone needs to sleep. Some people more, some people less, but everyone needs to sleep. All humans need to sleep. But however, you could just reorient. The objective, why am I sleeping? I'm sleeping so I have strength, so I have energy to do what I really want, my spiritual aims of my life. And then you just transformed this physical activity into being spiritual. And you're upgrading that all your deeds should be for the sake of heaven. And he ends up with the bottom line, the bottom line, a person has to focus with his eyes and his heart on his ways and to evaluate and to weigh all his actions with the scale of the intellect. And if you see something that brings you closer to service of God, you should do it. And if not, you should depart from it. And this, I think, is a, is a, is a revolutionary idea that, and I think I think this is maybe the insight of, of Torah. And it's the fundamental idea of holiness that it's it's not limited to things that are spiritual. It's a transformation of who you are and what you're living for. It's all for matters of holiness. So, for example, there's a Talmud in the book of Brachos on page 60 that says that there is one verse, a small Torah section, that upon which everything else hinges. And what's that? Bechol drachecha da'eyot. Quotes a verse, in all your ways you should know God. And the commentaries point out that this specifically, it's not that you should know God. It's it's in all your ways. All your actions should be for the sake of heaven. All your all your ways should be directed at trying to foster a relationship with your spiritual self. And all of Torah really hinges on this point. This is the objective of all of Torah to bring us, to, to recreate us, so to speak, in the spiritual mode, the spiritual modality. All our actions should be for the sake of heaven. There's a Ramban. And he, he takes this idea um, and applies it to a concept that we see many places throughout the Torah and Jewish literature, the idea uh, called avodas uh, Hashem or Eved Hashem. The word Eved means a servant. And we're told you're supposed to be a servant of God. That's an idea. In fact, there's a verse. The verse in the beginning of Deuteronomy says, 
Es Hashem Tira, you should fear Hashem your God, Veoto Ta'avod, and him you should serve as, you should work for. So the Ramban explains that what it means is that you should make yourself into, of course, this is, I want to just give a give a caveat. This is a very high level. Like this is all of Torah. So obviously this is not something that uh, I'm certainly not holding at this point. Uh, this is something which is something that we should maybe aspire to, or at least we should learn about and, and absorb on a uh, intellectual level. But he, the way he explains it is that just like a, a servant is going to prioritize the will of the master, so too we should prioritize the will of our master in all of our actions with eating, with drinking, everything that we need to do to maintain our body. That should be done in order to achieve that ultimate end. And what results is, is that a life that's entirely spiritual, a life where even the things, the activities that we share with the animal kingdom are done with the spiritual angelic twinge to it or tinge to it, twist to it. And that transforms everything into holiness. It's it's not that, another deep point that we see with the commentaries here, it's not that, well, there's the spiritual realm and the physical realm and let's bring some spirituality to the physical realm. It's actually a transformation of this physical realm, of the material realm, of the ephemeral realm and creates that, infuses that with holiness. And this is, again, one of the central themes of, of Torah, that we, we're saying, like the, the Kedusha, the holiness, we want to create a replica of the spiritual world here on the high holidays, for example. One of the major motifs of the high holidays that we're amidst uh, right now is trying to create parallels between humans and angels, the angels say this, and we say this. And the angels say this, and we say this. And that's something that appears dozens of times throughout the liturgy of the High Holidays. That's the idea. That's the central idea that our physical mundane world, which could be totally divorced from God, let's create that world as a replica of the spiritual world. So uh, to conclude, there is a, a prayer that we say during the 10 Days of Repentance uh, right after the first blessing in the Shemona Esra, in the Amidah, and that is Zachreinu Lechayim, remember us for, for life, Melech Chofetz Bachayim, a team that is desirous of life, Vechasveinu Besefer Hachayim, and write us, inscribe us in the book of life, Lemancha Elohim Chayim, in order uh, for you, the God of life. That's what it says. So my grandfather explained that there's, there's really three tiers here. There's, there's, there's three separate requests that we're making from God. Number one, remember us for life, the team that's desirous of life. What we're asking God is, you're desirous of life. Maybe I'm not deserving of it, but so what? Because you're desirous of life, give us life nonetheless. That's the first tier. And then we say, and inscribe us in the book of life. Why would I be inscribed in the book of life? Only if I am deserving of it. So the next thing we're saying is, is make us deserving of being inscribed in the book of life, not just because of your largesse, your goodwill, but rather because of our deeds. Make us worthy of having life. And finally, we ask for the ultimate thing, what kind of life 
are we striving for? Are we aspiring for a life that is living for the sake of you, so to speak? Our life should be an elevated life, a spiritual life, a life that we're living for God, not just when we are in the synagogue or when we are studying Torah or when we are doing things that are overtly spiritual. Rather, even in the mundane things, let's infuse it with spiritual life. And the result of that is that all our deeds will be for the sake of heaven.